If you wanted to gauge the state of straight white men in America in the 80s and 90s, you could just watch Michael Douglas movies. Throughout the 80s, he is the roguish hero, even when he is being hauled off to jail. So if you want to understand white male entitlement, watch Wall Street. If you want to understand that weird fear the moneyed men had about Japan, watch Black Rain. If you want to understand how a borderline abusive asshole becomes a romantic figure, watch his movies with Kathleen Turner. Then there's a change in the 90s as the checks on white men's power and their anxieties increased. Then we have falling down. We have basic instinct. We have disclosure. All films about the slipping of male power, their fears of being usurped, and the violence that results. If you have not seen Disclosure, by the way, I highly recommend this film. It's the, sure, we believe in sexual harassment, but it totally happens to men too film. Demi Moore is the harasser. Michael Douglas yells a lot about being the victim and his powerlessness. It's based on Michael Crichton because, of course it is. The thing is, I remember reading the novel in high school. It was being passed around my male friends because it was sexy in their estimation and gave them that what-about-the-men thrill that they already needed in the early 90s. And then there was the game. This is part of our Fincher series, and the game was his third film between Seven and Fight Club. And while it's not as discussed as much as his others, it is perhaps more prescient about what happens when you strip an entitled white man of his power than anything else he directed. It also, though, gave us a guidebook, in a way, of how you take a man who has become calcified with power and turn him back into a human being. And for all of you who have been listening to the astrology-related Fincher bonus episodes on Patreon, which you can access when you subscribe, and you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual, I think this film is prophecy about Pluto going into Capricorn. From the retreat of the billionaires, to the rampant daddy issues, to the white guys reclaiming their sense of power by getting guns and inflicting violence on the people around them, this is the reality in which we live. My guest is Carmen Pataccio, a PhD candidate at the University of Miami, and the first guest that I picked up off of Twitter. He tweeted at me about doing an episode of the game, and so I invited him to speak. As a part of the David Fincher series, we're here to talk about the game, uh, which is kind of this weird, neglected corner of his of his work, which uh, every other film that he's made has become, uh, in some way, iconic or or become had a devoted following of some sort. But the game sort of remains this obscured. Um, part of, of what he was trying to do, even though it seems like integral to his entire uh, project, I would say. 
No, I couldn't agree more. It's in a lot of ways, it's it should be the movie that has a cult more than any other of his movies. I think it's appealing to like populist sentiments the least, and yet it's his most overlooked film. And I think pretend, part of that is maybe where it came in his filmography. It was between these like obviously Fight Club, which is the most or like one of his most worshipped and dissected movies and seven which was his really like coming out movie and i think it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit for to its it's it's a disservice to the game that it's lost in the shuffle because it is i think one of his best movies and also got sort of lost in the shuffle at the time it made money not a huge amount of money but it made um enough money for him to make another film Right. Um, but also, like, the critical response was pretty mediocre of, we don't understand what this is doing, why is this so unsexy, um, was uh, a couple of people's complaints. Um, and um, people just didn't seem to, to sort of get it. But I think if it was released um, today, it kind of weirdly speaks tremendously to our culture of the falling of um, patriarchy and the moneyed class and uh, not that the moneyed class is falling but you know um, <laughs> it's no longer a sort of heroic uh, thing to be doing uh, we, no. we're not sort of you know looking at it in the same way no if anything it's an extremely useful document for how to address the power or like the unimpeachable power of the patriarchy and how to break this entrenched power system down I mean there is a very easy way to set up a game for Donald Trump in which there are, he like goes to his McDonald's and it's closed. And then he goes into his house, but it's like an MC Escher type of like staircase maze. <laughs> There's a shark tank at the end of it. And then a poor person. He has to hug a poor person. Oh my God. Or like in the, <clears throat> the sort of Marina Abramovich, uh, Thing with the two naked people um, and you have to in order to move into the next room you have to touch these two naked people um, it, it, that would poor people <laughs> yeah, yeah the game yeah. very much anticipated um, experiential art <laughs> that type of art installation but it also in, in ways that are relevant to today I think anticipated the blurring of reality and fiction in ways that other movies of the time, like Cronenberg's Existence, obviously The Matrix were doing, but still seemed ahead of their time and maybe, again, got lost in the shuffle because of that. Um, plus, The Matrix is a, is a really bad movie, um, as I discovered as I tried to watch it on an airplane recently. It turns out that it's a really, really bad movie. The Matrix is bad compared to the quality of The Matrix sequels. I will agree with you there. But... <laughs> <laughs> On its own, I think there are arguments for it. Um, okay, so uh, it's synopsis time. Uh, in in every film podcast, there there comes the time when somebody has to explain what's happening in the movie. Um, w would you like to do the honors? I would love to. So the game is a 1997. Would you say metafictional thriller? That was the term I came down to. Yeah, I like that. Metafictional thriller mystery that stars. Michael Douglas as a wealthy San Francisco investment banker named Nicholas Van Orton. His brother, played by Sean Penn, buys him an entrance into this mysterious experiential game. 
this game then gets interwoven into Michael Douglas's reality, subjecting him to like greater and greater humiliations and exhilarations until he, in the end, shoots his brother Sean Penn and throws himself off of a building. Is that? Um, yeah, that's succinct? pretty accurate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yes, he's he, Nicholas Van Orten and and his brother Conrad are the uh, sons of a tremendously wealthy and successful um, banking. Um, well, he inherited the um, the business from his father, but it seems pretty clear that this is sort of a, a family business going back some time, based on. Um, you know, property and power levels. Yes, quintessential um, old money. Yes. Um, and his father uh, killed himself, and he is now reaching the age where uh, that his father had killed himself when he was um, a, a small boy at the time. And we're all trying to break down Michael Douglas and, and, um, and push him to the brink of... Uh, a full sort of mental and emotional collapse. Yes. Um, which his brother is already kind of there. His um, brother is very awakened. He's a real yeah. free spirit, unlike Michael, the Michael Douglas character. Yes. Um, play, yeah, and the, and the Sean Penn thing is a little, it's a little on the nose, too. Um, <laughs> because the casting is amazing. Yes. Um, in this film. And uh, you were saying that this is sort of the beginning of uh, David Fincher's sort of impeccable um, casting choices. Yes, no, this is where I think he began to fully grasp the powers of this type of stunt casting and casting with both an in intense intent and a way of like vulnerabilizing the audience. So like when you see Tyler Perry in Gone Girl, that immediately he's playing with you there. And I think the game is where he first sort of, especially with Michael Douglas in relation to previous films like Basic Instinct and our, one of our favorites, Disclosure. He's playing with Michael Douglas both as a symbol of sexualized white male power and as a sort of scion of old Hollywood, obviously Kirk Douglas's son. He is born into a very much old money situation just as his character is in the game. Um, yes, and it, Michael Douglas brings with him onto the screen a lot, a lot of stuff. Yes. Uh, considering that he was essentially um, the personification of the entitled rich white man uh, 80s figure, yeah. all the sort of iconic films of um, the 80s man. Um, <laughs> Are, are Michael Douglas. I mean, we have... Um, Wall Street, uh, Wall obviously. Street. Yeah. We have uh, Black Rain, because apparently in the 80s, and I had forgotten this, we were all terrified of Japan. Oh. <laughs> um, there's I'm... this huge Japan phobia that they were going to buy all of our buildings and transform our culture. Um, and the white man um, had to uh, restate his sort of virility and um, hyper-masculinity um, to fight the sort of feminized Japanese business <laughs> culture. It was amazing. Like, I watched some of these movies. It was oh, really wow. Um, there were a lot of them, too. That's um, one, Black Rain. Yeah, Black Rain, which was Ridley Scott. 
Okay. Um, I know so, there's a reading of gremlins that reads the gremlins as Chinese importers who are taking away American manufacturing jobs and replacing them with cheap replacements, but I think that might be tangential. There was so much, so Asian much fear, fear Asia. in the eighties. Yeah. It was, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. Um, what else was in the eighties? Fatal attraction. Um, this sort of, uh, jewel of the Nile slash, uh, what was the other one? The, the prequel or see, I forget which order they're in, but, um, but that whole Kathleen Turner thing. Um, yeah, and, and in all of them, he plays a sort of, you know, roguish, uh, charming, narcissistic, sociopathic um, pinnacle of manhood. Um, and it's celebrated even when it's supposedly being um, criticized in something like Wall Street. No one right. remembers that he goes to jail. <laughs> Everyone just remembers greed <laughs> is good, right? Yes. Well, it's very much like the Wolf of Wall Street when it's supposed to be a critique and then the investment bankers and hedge fund managers on Wall Street start putting the um, Stratford symbol underneath their suits and stuff and having them on their cufflinks. It's a complete mis misunderstanding, I think, of the films. Yeah, and it's a common problem. Um, well, it's like Fight Club films. being co-opted by the alt-right and being seen as this male empowerment film when it's actually a critique of male fragility and like our propulsion toward violence yeah i mean i think i think whenever we have something that um someone is trying to like a subculture or something that somebody is trying to criticize there's always the or even just sort of the dark side of it um there's always the risk of it somehow being glamorized right um well simply and, by virtue of putting it on a screen i think glamorizes and fetishizes it to an extent Right, and putting pe pretty people in the roles, of course, right? Yeah. yeah, I remember train spotting, and people were horrified that train spotting was sort of glamorizing heroin and and that sort of stuff. Is Michael um, Douglas beautiful and pretty though? <laughs> he's so repulsive, <laughs> and, and I, I guess that's what I don't understand about the '80s arc, Michael Douglas, is that he's held up as some sort of like sex symbol or or aspirational figure, and he's just reptilian and um i i don't I, uh, uh, anyway sorry i think there obviously this isn't in the verhoven podcast realm but verhoven is definitely playing with this in basic instinct and the sex scene because there is no pretty much no sex in the game the game is michael douglas as a kind of desexualized figure Mm -hmm. which is part of what makes it fascinating. But in Basic Instinct, the sex scenes in that film are so awkward and I hate to use the term cat personae, but I, when I rewatched <laughs> the film, I had that, like the tongue going into the mouth, like a jackhammer oh, yeah. type deal. And it's just, they're both sort of Michael Douglas being desexualized, but their methods of going about it are completely different, but in conversation with each other. Um, yeah, so... Um, Basic Instinct was sort of early 90s, and, and it did sort of mark this shift of um, Michael Douglas being sort of white man ascendant and began to mark um, the sort of persecution of white men. Um, because he did this series of films of men sort of losing their power all in a row of Basic Instinct um, disclosure and and then the game and falling down was in there too but it was um sort of less um uh sort of more 
sort of positing him as a hero um, for him taking, trying to take his power back, right? Um, than than really sort of looking at what was actually going on in the culture and this <laughs> disclosure. Um, you you must provide a synopsis of that for the people listening at home. <laughs> I um, I didn't know what this film even existed, and watching it changed my life. Disclosure is a very important film. Um, I believe it was 1994. Um, Based on a Michael Crichton book. Um, Michael Crichton, who uh, really well documented the anxieties of powerful white men um, for for throughout his career. Um, And so the basic synopsis is Michael Michael (laughs) Crichton, his character works uh, in a tech firm, and he's set up to earn this promotion. Everybody believes that he's going to get it, and instead, the promotion goes to Demi Moore, um, who is this hypersexualized, um, scheming figure who doesn't really know anything. She just sort of gets ahead solely on. Um, her sexuality. So horny. Demi Moore is so horny in that film. She should be, get a horny jail life sentence. It's unbelievable. She, there is a scene in the film in which she instructs her assistant to lock Michael Douglas in her office. (laughs) She can molest him, essentially. And yeah, and so it becomes like this whole, um, Hashtag me too. Yes. Um, hashtag me too. Oh my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> um, and then there's a there there are um, there are a lawsuit. Uh, so Michael Douglas feels sexually harassed and taken advantage of and raped um, because she gave him a, a blowjob while he was saying no. And he so he files a lawsuit against his company um, because this woman who is now his boss. Uh, and was a former lover, uh, sexually harassed him. Um, and so allows this kind of amazing legal discussion in on it of, um, about sexual harassment and rape, but with men as the, um, as the prey and women as the predators and this whole anxiety (laughs) and fear that if women are allowed into business and to use their sexuality to get ahead, then men have no chance, right? Um, yes. At the end of the film, he he does not actually get the job. The job goes to an older woman, and he is completely fine with that because he isn't threatened by her sexuality. Yes, because she, she is. She looks like a lesbian, right? Yes. She has short hair, <laughs> short hair. The sort of boxy suit. Um, so she obviously. Uh, is is getting by on her merits. But if people are looking for a foundational text in the Me Too movement, they should revisit Disclosure before they revisit, before they revisit the game because it is essentially a film about a sexually harassed woman played by Michael Douglas. I can't, I cannot <laughs> recommend this film. It's unbelievable. Enough. It's, but we're, we're on a tangent now. We should. Yeah, we should move back. Um, but right, so it's part of this sort of um, the persecution of the white man. Um, and the game sort of plays with that a little bit. I was noticing that, um, you know, even at the at the point of, so he's in this game and then it looks like it's turning, that the game is actually just a con um, in order to sort of distract Michael Douglas while they empty his bank accounts and stuff like that. Um, and... 
there's a moment when he's being chased with um, by men with assault rifles who are actively firing at him. And at no point does he think, um, this seems a little bit... Uh, much. Uh, a little much. This seems less this beyond the realm of plausible, and this is probably fake, uh, and, and so on. But no, it feeds into his sort of persecution complex. Right. Um, which all apparently rich white men have, um, because yeah, it just reminded me of the um, the venture capitalist um, Tom Perkins, who went on live television and said billionaires are being treated like the Jews in Nazi Germany. <laughs> yes, well, woven through the game is an implicit critique that the rules of society do not apply to the wealthy, and it exists as a type of game for their pretty much arbitrary enjoyment and a means to apply some meaning to their otherwise meaningless lives of materialist accumulation and emotional devoidedness. Probably not a word, but that's, (laughs) (laughs) that's in there definitely. And I think these scenes as Michael Douglas is subjected to increasingly insane, as you said, people are shooting at him with guns. He is shooting people. Um, He winds up at one point in a tomb in Mexico. (laughs) It's just, it's at the same time, it feels as if the stakes do seem artificial in a way, but at the same time, the movie is escalating stakes as a traditional action movie would. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we, so Michael Douglas is is the kind of um, Michael Douglas, well, Michael Douglas is Michael Douglas. So how do we take apart Michael Douglas? Um, and it, I do enjoy the fact that the, that the film gives kind of a, a blueprint for how do you take apart a patriarch. And I also enjoy that the first steps are all, you should just um, fuck with his clothes. <laughs> um, because at the very beginning, it's it, he gets ink on his shirt, then he gets red wine spilled on him. Um, then he uh, loses a shoe to an attack dog. Uh, then he falls into a dumpster filled behind a, a Chinese fast food restaurant. Um, and um, and there's a scene in disclosure. Well, the opening of disclosures. He has toothpaste on his tie, and everyone he comes into contact with comments on it, and he feels embarrassed. Yeah, it's um, as much as we sort of talk about sort of um, you know men have no um, sense of style. <laughs> Um, and 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 so on and so forth. But they put a lot. Of, it's not style, right? It's it's status. Right. Um, Clothes make the man, and by destroying these signifiers of wealth and power, it's how you unmake the man, essentially. Because the first thing he does is mention how much his shoe costs. Yes. That he lost to the dog. That that one shoe cost a thousand dollars. Yes. Um, so then what's, yes, what's, what's the next step in, in, in this um, dismantling of the, of the patriarch uh, plan that we have? Well, I think one of, another strong, one of the really strong parts of the game is the way that it positions fiction as a way to undo the patriarchy and disempower man and make him a feeling human being again. And the, one of the reasons that I really like the game in Fincher's Ooh, is it's it has a really strong I think emotional through line with the father's suicide the first mm. the first sort of in intervention of the game into his life is that he finds a wooden clown doll in his driveway and it's in the exact same spot where the coroners found his father's body after he committed suicide so one of the ways to view the game is as one long sort of 
emotionalization of my of this otherwise emotionally repressed and unfeeling patriarch. Right, and and the sort of dismantling of the tie between father and son. Yes. I mean, I feel like it's incredibly significant that it's a clown, right? Because they are essentially telling um, Michael Douglas that his father is a ridiculous figure. Yes. Um, And yet he's lived his entire life in his shadow and fear of this, like, father figure that he never really knew. Not just in his shadow, but in his... um, Skin. Using it as a yeah, as a as a way of figuring out how to live a life, right. you know, trying to recreate a life that led to um, suicide and misery. Right. Um, and they essentially have the same the same existence of sort of emotional emptiness and inability to connect to others, um, and and that the dismantling of that tie ending in him sort of being forced to um, give up. The, his father's watch, which had been passed down to him, um, is kind of the, the one of the last moments of the of the game. Right. No, it's there's some very subtle humor there that the Michael Douglas character decides to model his life on his father who killed himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and his brother is this kind of um, taking has taken it to the other extreme and sort of. Um, ended up in a similar place but everyone likes his brother more <laughs> yes because he's so even his ex-wife and charming yeah even his ex-wife even though his um housekeeper <laughs> sort of seems to prefer conrad um to nicholas um but it's because he you know he's uh he's hit rock bottom he's sort of um reached a point of openness and vulnerability um, and has that kind of traditional addict uh, narrative structure um, and sort of come out improved from the other side, whereas Michael Douglas can't hit rock bottom um, because he refuses to allow himself to do that in any way uh, to make himself vulnerable and is protected by um, money and power. That's why he needs the game. Yeah, to force him into rock bottom. Yes. Um, yeah, and I do think about that, that the, the sort of like addict um, narrative structure, which is so prevalent in our culture, um, is sort of being commented on or tied into the game without being directly used. Um, but everybody, if we want to show sort of redemption um, in a movie or a TV character, it's the best way is to make them an addict of some kind. Right. And I think even though the Sean Penn character is never explicitly said to be an addict, this is maybe a, te- a, a testament to Sean Penn's talents, but you can read, I think, through his physicality in the film that he is an addict. He, there's one point in the movie in which he, he has to smoke inside, and Michael Douglas says, you can't smoke in here, a line that's repeated in Basic Instinct, but he says, "What the rules don't apply to us, you're Nicholas Van Oren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we should, I mean, you were the first, you were the one to point out to me that there's like this, this weird um, conversation happening between uh, Basic Instinct and the game. Right. Um, down to the to the point where they're both named Nick. Both yes. <laughs> Nick. And both of them, the women call them Nikki. That's true. Um, as as the as a endearing 
uh, part of it. Yeah, but, they're both um, obviously set in the same city of San Francisco, and they both seem to break down their respective Michael Douglases by pushing them kind of to a brink of madness and reality questioning, and they sort of force them both into this emotional transformation, whether you think it's constructive or destruct- destructive. Um. And it, well, in Basic Instinct, yeah, it's him sort of losing control because of um, because of this woman that he desires and cannot sort of control and yes. possess. Um, and um, and of course, the first thing he has to do um, after his sort of first <laughs> primary interaction is to go rape his uh, ex girlfriend. Of course, um, which is a really disturbing scene because she's trying to consent, right? Right. She's trying so hard to consent to this um, sexual encounter and to bring it into um, something that's relational. And he and, keeps insisting on turning this into a rape. Right. He won't allow it. His like libidinal urge is tied to this power dynamic because he can't actually have sex with the Sharon Stone character yet. Um. And something else I noticed about the sort of parallels between Basic Instinct and the game is the sort of lack of imagination in of the patriarch. Um, in the sense of like, at the end of Basic Instinct, when he's gone through all this stuff and he finally sort of, quote unquote, has the girl, the only thing he can think of is to say, well, why don't we just get married and have kids? <laughs> It's, yeah, and I think there's parts of the game that are definitely speaking to that. Obviously, the game ends on a kind of similar note in which he invites the, you can, if you want to call her the romantic interest in the film, to, like, get coffee with him. That's, like, the last beat in the entire movie, which I think is subtler than the one in Basic Instinct, at least in terms of, like, the domestic, like, what you're left with is the domestic experience after all of this. I know, and it, I find that really, um, well, in Basic Instinct, it's funny. Right. <laughs> um, because obviously she's a serial killer, and, and even if she weren't a serial killer, um, even if she were just sort of the figure that she is, which is, you know, um, a, a fabulously wealthy, independent writer, um, it's an absurd thing to say to somebody like that. Hey, we, should get, we should get married and have kids. Right. There's actually shades um, of Gone Girl in there in the way that that movie ends. Oh, God, there is. Um, and my theory of Gone Girl is that she um, set him up not because he cheated on her, but because she came home and he was playing video games. I think that was the <laughs> moment when she started planning it. <laughs> well, Gone Girl also has um, Death of the Publishing Industry. <laughs> parts of it just as this movie does yeah the the um his client his father's his father's friend and and the big client is the um is this weird little publishing company that i guess exists in seattle yeah sure <laughs> um that he that he sort of moves to fire uh to fire the guy um so both, both Gone Girl and the game, I think, are about a world bereft of the written word in which people just are all left to become sociopaths or, like, domestic <laughs> monsters. Yeah, and I guess in, in Basic Instinct, um, that sort of 
idea of, well, let's just get married and have kids is kind of the patriarchy trying to reassert itself because, you know. Right. Personally, I believe that marriage is a form of societal control of women. Of course. Um, and uh, and subjugation and patriarchal uh, power. But, um, but I think it is because it forces um, a sort of flattening of complexity and um, um, power imbalances. Um, It's a structure at the center of society that then replicates itself out and you see it through every single corner of pretty much existence, this marriage power dynamic. Yeah, so the patriarchy reestablishes itself through every every sort of nuclear family and every every marriage. Um, And I I, I do believe that. But... um, but that's why, um, but that's, I guess, what sort of makes it interesting in the game that he doesn't have kids. No. Um, the patriarch um, is either um, impotent or frigid because he was married and um, that did not result in children. And he's horrified by sex. Like, he's um, the, the woman that's a part of the game, or is she not part of the game? Um, is hitting on him wildly. Yes, taking a shower with, in his office. <laughs> yeah, coming up with a like a, a reason to take her shirt off in front of him, um, and he averts his eyes and he does nothing to pursue that situation at all. Which is a weird sort of um, it's a weird sort of thing to do to a Michael Douglas. Right, and one of the turning points in which the game sort of tips over into insanity pretty much is that he wakes up after thinking that the game has ended he's gone on this long sort of chase sequence with this girl and the next morning he wakes up with a call from a hotel that he did not stay in saying that he the room that he had stayed in the night before had been trashed and so michael douglas goes over to this hotel and finds the room completely destroyed and pornographic photographs all over basically insinuating that he did have sex with this girl who he did not have sex with and that horrifies him and not just sex, but um, uh, there's cocaine in the room. Right. Um, and sort of impl- there's pornography being played um, on the on the television. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, the hedonistic aspect of the Michael Douglas figure is sort of cut off and denied in in a sort of terrified way um, by by this Michael Douglas figure. Yeah, and his brother, I think, represents a lot of that. So when he, so his brother, the Sean Penn character, is a type of prototypical um, fuck-up son, if you want to call it that. He is a free spirit. He's never joined the family business. I imagine him on, like, a yacht somewhere, just sort of doing drugs and floating through the ether. But, so obviously when he, his, like, final moment before he, Michael Douglas throws himself off the building is that he shoots his brother with the intent to kill him. And I think all of that is bound up in that action of when he tries to kill his brother is also a way of like killing this freer, more sexually liberated part of himself. And also compassionate. Yeah. Um, because he panics in a way in the, in that scene that's really disproportionate to what's happening. Yeah. Right. Cause he's incredibly wealthy and he could make, you know, people who are incredibly wealthy, isn't that the point of becoming incredibly wealthy so you can do drugs and have weird sex? I thought that was, I thought that was the goal. Not, Um, not for poor frigid Michael Douglas in the game. Poor frigid Michael Douglas. (laughs) Um, 
Um, right. And um, also kind of the um, it's an encapsulation of all of those sort of Michael Douglas movies, like in, in a way of Fincher um, moving Michael Douglas through his <laughs> through his entire career. Like all the little set pieces could be seen as being um, little tiny uh, glimpses into characters that Michael Douglas has, pay, has played in the past, which is interesting. Right, and if Michael Douglas is getting older in, in reality, there is, I think, a sense in the game that he is reckoning with himself as a desexualized actor and someone who, for which sexual, like, obviously that was his calling card for most of his career that he was this reptilian sex symbol but that he that he is get like i think he's 48 in the film yeah that he is in reality an actor who was on the precipice of no longer sort of being a sex symbol i think is tied up in here too um yeah and in real life um kirk douglas is apparently still alive (laughs) he is 101 years old um I guess he was just given a big award, which is how I found out he was still alive. Um, and Michael Douglas um, might die before Kirk does because uh, Michael Douglas is not looking is not looking great. Yeah, too much sex. Say. Too much sex. Too much <laughs> masturbating yeah. in front of his employees. Apparently. Do it. <laughs> well, that's um, one way for the patriarchy to be eliminated. They'll all just masturbate themselves to death in front of us, and then we won't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> If only. <laughs> um, yeah, and so um, in this process of breaking down the patriarch and in this process of this sort of um, this is your life, Michael Douglas thing that David Fincher is doing. Um, so the, this figure has been uh, dismantled. His home has been invaded. Um, his a sense of comfort, all of his money uh, has been stolen. And so in his sort of last act, um, as, as before hitting rock bottom, um, is to get a gun. Right. And the placement of that gun, I think, is super significant because the game masters have sort of taken away all his means of defending himself, except they overlooked this. So he has a hidden gun in his house that's stored away in a hollowed out copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. And obviously I think you have a lot of significances there with Atticus Finch and this prototypical patriarch figure of like the enlightened father and Michael Douglas is like his last defense is to go to this symbol of patriarchal perfection kind of. Yeah, the father as as the protector, right? right? Or and the and the savior, the white man savior. Um, there's so much. Um, by the way, just as an aside, I really enjoy that everybody um, lost their shit when Atticus Finch was revealed to be um, a racist. Right. <laughs> I really enjoyed. That was Harper Lee's the game <laughs> to, set, <laughs> to set a watchman. <laughs> She entered Atticus Finch inside, and he came out a different person. Um, but yeah, it, it's uh, it's the white man thing to do, um, right? Get before, a gun. It's just like yeah. it down. How do you claim uh, and, your power? And 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 how do you resist transformation? How do you resist vulnerability? Um, you 
you get a fucking gun and then you go kill somebody that you love. <laughs> um, you know, in, in this particular instance, it was his brother, but usually it's a wife. Um, but it's a very sort of, I think, important part of the film, especially since it's, um, it comes after falling down, which to me is a horror movie, but to everybody else, it was like, look at this sort of, you know, look at this hero, look at this, um, countercultural figure standing up to the, uh, to the real oppressors, which is, um, fast food, uh, workers who right. are being paid a minimum wage and um the most amazing uh gang member film characters that i've ever seen in my life <laughs> no it's a completely misplaced idea of like how to resist dehumanization mm-hmm. and falling down obviously paints it so michael douglas has been dehumanized by the homogenizing forces of capitalism has lost his job how does he reclaim that he goes and gets a gun <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously itself a dehumanizing force. And so his like process of regaining his humanity is just like denying other weaker people their humanity. Mm-hmm. And this, Including his wife. Yeah. Right. And this, the game I think plays that much differently, which is what makes it such a great film. Um, Cause his gun fires blanks, at least in the game. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh, the, there's a metaphor there too. To his to his impotent slash rigidity, right. yeah. Aww. <laughs> now I feel bad for the, the poor little patriarch. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting how many um, men, male critics, really enjoyed um, falling down and didn't see the kind of inherent sickness of of that storyline. Um, at, you know, it was a, my father, my father loves falling down. Um, and, <laughs> it's strange. Uh, my father loves the game. Really? Oh, that's a better, that's probably a better dad. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's debatable. Um, but they, so they really liked falling down in the sense of, you know, um, there are so many, books and movies that have been held up in our culture throughout time that that I feel like a lot of women could see um oh this is this is weird that you're doing this um uh and probably a lot of um uh uh you know uh game readers and black readers and and so on and so forth can can see um this is super uh fucked up that you are uh heralding this particular figure and and celebrating his um response to dehumanization with with violence um but so much of any post-war literature um is is the celebration of of you know norman mailer uh saul bellow uh writing stories about um of violence against uh, against women um and I, so I, I kind of like the game's deconstruction of that uh, of that moment of when the when the white guy goes and gets a gun. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's falling down. I think is so like when it when it came out like nineteen ninety two or something mm-hmm. that it was able to anticipate and articulate the mass shooter phenomena and in a way provide a kind of mass explanation for it. 
that like, oh, this is why these people are doing this. And that makes it comprehensible to us. And thus, I also think kind of lets people off the hook for it a little bit and doesn't allow us to address the obvious like plague of gun violence in this country is Mm -hmm. also, I think, why the game being in conversation with it is so important. Um, yeah, it's not it's not kind of a surprise to me that so many um, people in our culture pretend like they don't know why mass shootings happen. Yes. I'm like, have you not seen? Have you not looked out your window? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing but reasons. Yeah. Um, so, in the sense of um, David Fincher's whole sort of project. Um, this to me is the first serious one. I mean, people who like Seven, I, I really am worried about um, because I don't think it's a very good movie. Um, although it is, it does have its weird cult following. Right. Um, it has the, the it has the one movie. iconic scene, which of course is about female violence against females. Yeah! Yay! <laughs> um, um, but this is a, this is sort of the beginning of him. Um, his exploration of um, of masculinity and uh, and violence in our culture, and you can sort of see it as um, well. Sometimes it gets a little repetitive. I feel like Ma- uh, Mindhunter pulls a lot from uh, Zodiac and 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 from Fight Club. Um, but I think it's one of he's one of the few directors who can is consistently or um, even doing this in an interesting way. No, for sure. And I think he also has Gone Girl as an example of this. But I think Panic Room is also about how femininity resists the violence that have that is you know exacted upon it. And so he also, I think, provides counterpoints as much as his. I think almost all of his work besides Panic Room and Gone Girl is about male fragility and male violence and how men relate to each other and like worlds without women in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is why I think it's interesting how often he's um, accused of sort of misogyny. Yeah. That's that's another (laughs) very, very wrong misreading. Um, So what significance do we place on the San Francisco setting. We haven't really talked about that yet, but it feels um, more specific to the moment that it's um, talking to than just the fact that that's where Fincher grew up. And so, you know, he likes the city and (laughs) his movies there. Beautiful bridge. um, Very good bridge. Very, um, very, some nice uh, fog. Yeah, fog. uh, Yeah. but yeah, mid-90s, San Francisco, um, both Basic Instinct and the game are set there, and um, why? <laughs> My little pet reading of why he would choose San Francisco for the game would be that there is an anxiety in the film, I think, about old industry being confronted with the presence of tech and how being made obsolescent by tech and obviously, if this this could be attached to Michael Douglas becoming an obsolescent figure in the film world if he's no longer allowed to be a sex icon. But the company that oversees the game, Consumer Recreation Services, 
is very much, I think, positioned as a tech firm on, like, so he, when he signs up for the game, he has to go through this, like, rigorous physical in which he runs on a treadmill with a breathing tube. He watches this insane clockwork orange-esque, how do you describe that, like a sensorial overload movie? Yeah, like one of those, um, I guess he, he's supposed to flip a switch whenever he feels something specific or something. <laughs> he never That's flips what the it switch. seems to be happening, but he's just, um, it's just random upsetting images and words. Right, so um, CRS is very much like a data analytics firm in a way, and that Michael Douglas doesn't understand its rules and feels that it is, it obviously they take away all his money, and it feels like there is an aspect of the film that is addressing old money coming into conflict with the new money of Silicon Valley. And it's also interesting that neither movie addresses in any way, um, at least uh, not in an on-screen kind of way, um, the subcultures of San Francisco. Yeah, they don't in the exist. Of, yeah, the gay community doesn't exist. The punk community doesn't exist. The tech community doesn't necessarily exist um, in a in a in a visible way, um, except for that weird moment when his house is broken into in the game, and then graffiti is painted on the walls, and Jefferson Airplane <laughs> is playing at loud volume. Um, which is kind of a weird, amazing moment. Um, I'm still trying to figure that out, but what do you make of it? No, one, one of the reasons that I love the game is that there are so many, I think, iconic scenes that have been lost to the, like, the annals of critical appreciation. Just as many, I think, as whatever, Fight Club or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And that is definitely one of them. But it does feel like the countercultural grime sort of crust like his house looks like a crust punk den essentially mm -hmm. but yeah. i think part of this whole um tech infringing on old money another aspect of it is that this san francisco that michael douglas occupies in both movies kind of does at the same time resemble the san francisco of today in which the counterculture and the art scene and the gay community has been pushed out by tech tech empowered gentrification so there is, I think, the sterility and lifelessness of these worlds strangely kind of anticipated what San Francisco in a way looks like today. And the Jefferson Airplane is kind of weird in the sense of like, um, it's such an old idea of what um, vandals would be into, right? <laughs> like, so in the 90s, all, all of the cool kids breaking into houses and playing and playing Jefferson Airplane. <laughs> like, um, but obviously it sort of like harkens back to sort of the summer of love and, and this, uh, this whole um, liberation that happened that, that he was not in any way a part of and he didn't benefit from because he had to sort of... Um, Sit it out. Right, because he had to become the dad, uh, the, the man of the house after his father died when he was a child. And there's that confrontation with his brother, you know, when, you know, when, he, when he yells, you know, did I have a choice? Um, <laughs> which is also kind of amazing. Yeah, but, the Sean Penn uh, character is definitely meant to represent this much more like free love, I think, child of San Francisco. Than, yeah. uh, that is then counterposed against the Michael Douglas character. Um. And I, yeah, I, I, I 
I feel sorry for Michael Douglas now. After <laughs> I love that I really the, the entire thrust of 90s filmmaking was to make you feel sympathetic for Michael Douglas. <laughs> I know. He's that's really, so weird. He's really been put through the gamut. Poor Michael Douglas. Yeah. He got sexually harassed um, by Demi Moore. He got, you know, um, stalked by Glenn Close. Like, he just couldn't, um, he couldn't catch a break. Um yeah. <laughs> he did fine in real life. <laughs> Catherine Zeta-Jones seems like a wonderful woman. And, you know, of all the addictions, if you're going to have one, I mean, sex sex addiction is yeah. probably the best one to have. Because <laughs> um, it doesn't interfere with the public persona that he worked so hard to create of, um, you know, the Lothario and the... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Should you? Yeah, um, you should talk about some of your favorite scenes, because I think in the game. Yeah, yeah, I think we should try to substantiate substantiate the iconography that people are missing out on. Um, right. The some of the sort of best moments of it. Um, the thing that I, one thing that I went back to um, this time is the scene after he's, after the game has begun. And it's begun in this really sort of fucked up way of, of the clown um, um, in the in the driveway, the dead dad. Um, he's walking through the airport, and it's the first time you see him even notice his surroundings. Yes. <laughs> and it and he's kind of excited by it, right? There's a small smile, but he's looking at people. Um, he's engaged with his environment. And it's like his life is interesting to him for the first time um, in, in the whole thing. And, um, and I really, and I really like that moment as much as I like the moment when um, he first, he loses control of the situation um, a couple hours later, because maybe the game people have, um, are, have locked his briefcase which is preventing him from firing his father's friend. Um, and he completely loses his shit in this really bizarre, just like three second moment of him beating the shit out of his, out of his briefcase um, back at the airport. Yeah. It's, that's like a, such a beautifully framed shot. It's in this very super deep blue and he is mm -hmm. just slamming this briefcase that he can't open against a, metal bench in the airport and he's like encased in glass he looks like a caged animal so but this is not even like one tenth of what's going to be exact on so it it just shows like the minimum amount of friction that it takes to like completely turn a man into an animal and just that that brief moment of like he's turned on to his life again and it doesn't go the way he wants no. <laughs> <laughs> like he wants it to be exciting and he wants it to sort of um you know, open him up, but not if it's going to inconvenience him in any way. And then that's, he loses his shit immediately. Yeah. Um, There's an endearing naivete when he's walking through the airport and his life has been like infused with this dangerous meaning. <laughs> it's like completely undercut. And he discovers it's going to be a completely different thing. Um, yeah. And also, um, Fincher does car crashes really well. <laughs> I don't know if he has been in a car crash before, um, but in uh, the game when the car goes into the river and um, in Fight Club when uh, they let go of the steering wheel and it crashes, right. um, they're both really, they are both very much what like 
being in a car accident like, <laughs> in that kind of terrifying slash exhilarating, painful, everything. It's, um, it's weird how infrequently I've seen it well done. Because everyone now does the thing where the camera is in the... Right, um, it gets turned upside down. Yeah, and the, you can tell like when, when they're setting it up uh, because the camera suddenly moves into the driver's seat uh, and is looking out the window to where the driver isn't looking, and it's it's immediately obvious what's about to happen. But um, I don't know. Fincher does it really well. Do you attribute that to his music video directing that he was like forced to have much more active? I don't I don't know what I attribute his mastery of car crashes from. I guess he's a director who deals a lot in collisions, and he wants to make sure that he gets the collisions correct. I would imagine that he's been in a car crash and knows what it's like. Okay. Because <laughs> um, if you go, if you've been in like a bad car crash, that's I mean, it's it's a singular experience. Right. Um, yeah. So I think that that's I don't know, but that was my other thing is that the when the car goes into the river, um, that's and he's telling himself it's just a game, it's just a game, as his life is about you know yeah. maybe going to end. Um, Oh no, I think I think I, I have. That was a really powerful moment. I think my reading is that Fincher is obviously about characters either trying to reclaim control or exert control, and I think car accidents are one of the times when even the most powerful people are completely out of control. And I think, mm-hmm. especially in Fight Club, like when they take the hands off the wheel, that is like their way of exerting control. That's like they're all the the Project Mayhem members are in the van, right? Mm-hmm. And then they let it crash. Yeah. Um. Were there any any of your favorite scenes? Um, I so after he grabs the gun from the Tequila Mockingbird hiding space, he goes to the CRS headquarters, takes a security guard hostage, and essentially tries to get them to stop his game. And mm-hmm. he kicks open the door to a cafeteria and is leading his hostage in and sees. I it may be every extra who appeared in the entire movie. So in this this scene is like a micro it like completely explodes the parameters of the game. So it is literally all of society in this film, <laughs> which you have like a very much like that's also kind of like the extras and the actors eating in between scenes. So there's there's a lot of meta fictive stuff going on in that scene. Um, yeah. Um, any any final thoughts on the game before we we wrap this wonderful thing up? <laughs> I, I hope people watch it. <laughs> <laughs> one um, other yeah, one I, other person is enough for me. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original Dog. podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe Dog. to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.